and you've got the whole piece in front of you. So it's these people are counted, and these people, and these people, and throughout all of history. And then, of course, again, with the language, you're getting that imagery throughout history, but for Jews and Gentiles, who all believe throughout, throughout all of time. And keep this in mind as we, as we go through the portion, this linkage between the covenant of the Torah and the commandments of the Torah and the quote-unquote gospel of Yeshua, because both of that, those, those kind of get linked back up again together um, in a couple of places later on in the portion. Um, which I thought, I, I, yeah, I think it's really neat the way that God has this eternal thing. My father-in-law here is really big into generational faithfulness. You may have heard him say that once or twice before. Um, and that gets back into this again. It's like you, you have to pass it on because whether you like it or not, that next generation is being included. And they have that responsibility. And if you don't teach them, they're not going to be equipped to do what they have to do. It could also be because of the connection to Rosh Hashanah and standing before Shem, right? So those of you who are standing today with me when Moses is, is giving this declaration and those of you who are not here but you'll stand before Hashem mm -hmm. you know on some future Rosh Hashanah right some mm -hmm. future point in time it's still applicable right all, right. all of what I'm saying here right. applies whenever you stand before Hashem in covenant this, this is for you Right, and yeah, it, and it has that timelessness yep. element to it, yep. extending. Um, and of course, then the next the next passage uh, goes into he's made this comment before, talking about don't do what you saw the last guys do in Egypt, and don't do what the people you're going to go visit are doing. Um, but then he has an interesting twist here because he starts to talk about what happens inside the camp which is a different perspective. Before, he's been teaching us to be careful about the outsiders because they're dangerous. But then in the next uh, couple of verses, he says, in verse 17, or verse 16, he says, you saw their abominations. And then verse 17, he says, perhaps there is among you a man or woman or family or tribe whose heart turns away from being without a nut. So in other words, he's like, um, you're going to see all these things you're not supposed to be doing. And there might be a couple of people in your group themselves who will be allured by these outsiders and want to do what they do. And then he uses a very interesting uh, phrase that only, I think, well, I don't know how often it's just been scripture, but it shows up in two specific places, which is very interesting. He says, perhaps there is among you, this is in verse uh, 17, perhaps there is among you a root flourishing with gall and wormwood. And it will be that when he hears the words of this imprecation, he will bless himself in his heart, saying, peace will be with me, though I walk as my heart sees fit. Um, that person, this, this person who basically says, I can do whatever I want because God will forgive me or I, I won't, I won't, he, doesn't, he's not, he doesn't really care, he won't really judge me. Um, that phrase, root of bitterness and wormwood, shows up one other location. It's in the book of Hebrews, or at least one other location. Um, and it shows up in Hebrews chapter 12. And it's linked to Esau, which I think is kind of cool. So in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 14... Through 17, it says, Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. Notice here again where the, the context, it's the same context. 
And so a lot of traditionally in Christianity, they tend to say, you know, work on that root of bitterness. Make sure you forgive the people around you. And this is, of course, also a good mitzvah. But that's not what Hebrews is talking about. Mm-hmm. Hebrews is talking about those people who are bad seeds, so to speak, bad roots. Cleanse the place. And he says that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. Which again goes back to the context here, saying, don't think that you can do whatever you want, and then you can ask for forgiveness, and it'll be okay. Instead, God makes it very clear, just like with Esau, there is no forgiveness. You've crossed the line there. I mean, not to say that there's not really any forgiveness, but the odds of you properly repenting and God responding to that is really slim. And when he, because what he follows up by saying is, Adonai will set him aside for, for evil. Uh, he also says, verse 19, Adonai will not be willing to forgive him. The point being that he's, by, by taking for granted God's patience, he has essentially frittered away his opportunity. His opportunity. Yeah, the, um, this version. Perhaps there is among you a person growing in wickedness, like a root that is sprouting bitter herbs, like hemlock and wormwood, such that when he hears the words of this oath, he'll think that they don't apply to him. Mm-hmm. And he'll convince himself in his heart, saying, I will be okay, even if I follow my heart's desires. To such a person I will add to the punishment for his sins, which were done inadvertently, as if in a drunken stupor. A further punishment for his sins done intentionally, out of a conscious thirsting. God will not be willing to forgive him. Rather, God's fury and his zeal will fume against that man, and the entire curse written in this book will come down upon him, and God will obliterate his name from beneath the skies. Yeah, it's, it gets bad that, news. Very bad news. Yeah. It's funny because every well, not funny, but it's, it's really serious. But whenever you get that, um, there's certain like uh, sins where God says, and if so and so does this, you shall drag him out, and you shall throw rocks at him, and he'll die, and you know, so on and so forth. And, if you, and there are other times where it's like, and if this person does this wrong, there's punishments by lashings, there's punishments by a whole bunch of different things. But this is one of those handful of times where God says, I, I'm going to take care of this one. Like, this is a big enough deal. It's a, almost kind of assuming, I think, that you may not realize this person is, is doing this. You should, you should be aware, because you don't want this person negatively impacting the people around you. But ultimately, God is going to personally uh, deal with this person. And it's interesting that verse they translate the um, the thirsty and the watered yeah. as saying God's going to punish him for the unintentional and for the intentional sins is two different things. Another traditional interpretation of this passage is that um, the watered and the thirsty somehow refers. It's almost like it sort of like in sucks in like the whole group of Israel like this one bad egg. He doesn't just touch himself. He like he he he, he negatively impacts like the whole nation. People who are righteous, people who are wicked. It's like it just sort of like. You know, and we see that with Achan. Achan is a great example right. of this in the book of Joshua. He does exactly this thing. Yep. He's wandering around, sees something he wants, he takes it, and as a result, you end up with, what is it, 36 guys die at the Battle of Ai. Right. The only time in the whole passage, uh, the whole battles of Joshua... Yeah, why did we lose? Where they have, where they lose. And it's because of this other guy who wasn't... I mean, he didn't die. Not then. But he's the one who's basically, because of his sins, tainted the community... Um, and which, again, goes back to the same thing we saw with, with the passage in Hebrews. Right. Warning them, hey, look, if you've got a bad egg in your community, and they are, um, they can lead your children astray, they can, they can negatively impact other people, 
And of course, you know the traditions about Esau. He was like the ultimate hypocrite. He was very good at making it seem like he cared, but then he was immoral and he was violent and he was, you know, controlling the chocolate factory. <laughs> Bad egg. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> kind of makes you understand why the Chabad are as, um, why there are so many rules. That have to be careful. Yeah, just because they don't want to find themselves in that place. That's it. Mm. Yeah, and I think it's um, it's interesting too because I think in is it, Paul's talking to Timothy. He says, "Be careful to rush, you know, putting your hands on him, giving him authority." Because um, yeah, you just don't know. I've heard other traditions where, like, there, I think there's a, a community in Russia. Well, we used to have friends who lived out there, and they um, they would wait like a year before they would baptize you. Like, you could be part of the group, and you might have made a profession of faith or whatever, but we're not, like, officially bringing you in until we've seen that this is, like, going to stick. Uh, so that, that, that was a very interesting point. Um, as we move on, uh, there's, a, this, there's a couple of places every now and again in the scriptures where you go, it's a prophecy, and I've seen it happen. And this Torah portion has one of those. And we've probably mentioned it before, so you may know where I'm going with this. But in verse 21, um, uh, it says that your children who will rise after you and the foreigner who comes from a distant land, when they will see the plagues of that land and its illnesses with which Adonai is afflicted, sulfur and salt, a conflagration of the entire land, it cannot be sown and it cannot sprout, and no grass shall rise upon it like the upheaval of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboim, which Adonai returned in his anger and wrath. What's cool about this passage, it's obviously awful, but what's neat about it is it's a prophecy saying that when you sin, God's going to totally devastate the land, take you into exile, but not just remove you from the land, the land itself is going to be a, a wasteland. And it says specifically that a foreigner will see it. Uh, well, in the 1800s, one of the most famous Americans to visit Israel uh, is Mark Twain. And he goes over there, and of course he's, he does not want to mince his words, and basically, he comes back and he's like, I don't know what the big deal is. Like, the land of Israel is, is basically just a bunch of camels in sand. There's nothing there. And, well, it's not an exact quote what we see here. I'm sure other people may have been saying the exact same thing we've got here. The point is, you get that imagery there. And they, he was right. In fact, when Israel moves back, when the Jews are given back their state, when I was, we were in, we went to go to... Um, the, the Independence Hall where they made the Declaration of Independence in Tel Aviv and the woman there boy I tell you it's always great when you meet like a really good Zionist you know she's very proud of her country's heritage and she's like yeah so we declared independence over this you know scrap of country that the UN decided to give us and of course the United Nations because they love the Jews so much gave us the swampland and the desert the swampland up north around the Galilee and the desert in the south they didn't give them, like, you know, the breadbasket areas. They basically gave them the coastland, which is desert. And they gave us the north, which is swamp. And they gave us the Negev, which is desert. And yet, Europe was buying produce from Israel less than 50 years later from the dirt, like the desert. I mean, like, the Gaza Strip, before the Israelis gave it up in 2005, was a major source for flowers and fruit and other types of things like that. Two countries that have much more rain than desert than Israel gets, and so looking at that contrast, seeing that like basically when the people of Israel are not there, and God's blessing is withdrawn from the land, it's a wasteland. There's just nothing. There's nothing there. Um, and then when the people of Israel return and that blessing from God comes back, all of a sudden it's just inverted. 
And it's a totally different, lush, vibrant country that is almost unrecognizable to where it was. Um, so we see this actual passage happening in that period of time when, it, when, it, when Israel is in exile, which even though it's a sad one, it still is neat to the confirmation that, yes, what God says he does do. Um, as we keep moving through, and people can jump in whenever they want. No, you're doing good. You're okay. doing good. It's not supposed to be the, the Josh show. It used to be the, the Joe show. Yeah. Um, so are, you, are, you picking it, are you jumping on 30? I was going to go in that direction, yes. Yeah. Well, verse, verse, I'm sorry, verse 28 before we get to 30. This is a cool passage because it says, The hidden are for Adonai, our God, but the revealed are for us and our children. There's a couple of different interpretations of what that means. Um, one thing is is basically the, the, the transliteration the transliteration that they the translation they put in here they put sins in brackets it's not actually there but they one interpretation is that basically um, this goes back to some degree kind of what we're going to get into as we go into Yom Kippur this idea that um, it also goes back to things like the the heifer that they kill for the person who commits murder we don't know who did it and also ties in as well to David in some of the Psalms he talks about like. You know, I basically try to avoid doing um, doing the things that I know about this, the, the the intentional sins. He asks God to save him from those, but the unintentional sins, the things you don't know about, that ultimately is in God's hands. Yeah, Romans seven, Paul does the same thing. And you get this idea of like God is saying, uh, essentially here, it's saying that we don't have to worry about those. Like we should do our best to be obedient, but if along the way, you know, God forbid, we should be sinning in error by accident or or out of ignorance, it's like God's going to take care of that. He'll either teach you, and you have an opportunity to make teshuva, or it will be, um, you know, essentially there's like forgiveness for that. Because in, in you know, the whole Yom Kippur thing, um, there is uh, the idea that like the, um, the, uh, the Yom Kippur really was for almost like the unintentional sins. The sins you didn't really mean to do, they, you know, just sort of happened, you know, this there was an accident, didn't intend that. I thought Shabbat started at X, and you know, whoops, I was you know at twenty minutes off the one week, you know, whatever. And basically, that that was forgiveness for that. But it's a, it takes a different kind of teshuva and that repentance before God, that prayer and repentance to to atone for the intentional sin. So it's like a different category, so to speak. And again, you get that imagery here. Basically, God saying, "I'll forgive the stuff you don't know about. I'll take care of that." But for us and for our children, we are responsible for the things that we do know. Which I think for those of us, especially those of us, you know, newcomers to this, to this faith, so to speak, even if we've been doing it for a while, we still don't know everything, and sometimes you'll be going, oh, "You're kidding! We were supposed to be doing that." It's supposed, oh. yeah. But then, so it's like it's encouraging, you know, to know that like I don't need to know it all right now, and if I do happen to find something out a year from now, there is there is grace for <laughs> that. Yes, sir. So backing up one verse to twenty-seven. And then I remove uh, them from upon their soil with anger, with wrath, and with great fury, and he cast them to another land at, as this very day. Um, so if you if you look at that verse, uh, there's some there's something that's pretty pretty unique there. You guys see that? Oh yeah, very large lamin. Okay. You only see that if you've got. Hebrew on the right side of the page. It's the word so, Yishlachem, the I will cast them. Yes, Yishlachem, which has the same root uh, 
Shlich. 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 Okay. Okay. What we're, we're going to do on Monday when we cast our sins into the water, right? So the same idea, Hashem is casting out his people from the land because they've done all these things and they've been disobedient. Um, so the question arises, why in the scroll do we have this large lamet? Um, and Miss Allen and I were talking about this during the Oneg because there's significance to these nuances in the, in the Hebrew text, but you can't translate the nuance. So, you know, in the, in the English, mm-hmm. if you're just reading English, mm-hmm. you never see the nuance in the Hebrew, which is why I always encourage everybody, even if you can't read Hebrew, at least make sure you've got something with Hebrew yeah. text. Look for the weird stuff. At least notice, oh, that's kind of weird. Why is it there, you know? Um, so the question is, why is there this this um, enlarged lamed and what does it mean and, and so there's there's a few different um, interpretations one is lamed has a gematria of 30 mm-hmm. so it is prophesying it's basically a prophecy of um, of that it was a, basically a, a, a time marker as to when they would be exiled um, the, the first time uh, which happened, at, you know, uh, with the Galut Babli, with the Babylonian exile after the destruction of the first temple, right. which is thirty generations from Abraham. So if you go from Abraham to King Shlomo, Hamelik, that was fifteen. There was fifteen kings, not generations. Fifteen kings um, of the people, leaders of the people, from uh, Abraham to Shlomo, and then from Shlomo to uh, was the last king Zedekiah yeah. um, Zedekiah when the destruction when the temple, first temple was destroyed mm-hmm. so the Lamed having Gematria 30 was was a prophetic hint in the text to mm-hmm. say this Moses was prophesying that 30 kings from now this is going to happen wow. and you're mm-hmm. going to be you know uh, schlicked as it were out of the land you're going to be cast out of the land so that's that's one uh, that's one idea. Um, another another uh, uh, opinion was was well the lamed because it is the lamed by the way is the tallest letter in the alphabet even when it's written normally mm-hmm. it reaches you know it reaches into the heavens as you, you mm-hmm. kind of think about it that's, in that from that standpoint. So the fact that it's now so it's already it's enlarged. It's like uh, one comment. One one uh, Rob said, you almost have to take the lamet out, like set the lamet aside. And when you take the lamet out of the word, it changes the word from vayishlachem to vayashchem, which, by the way, has the gematria of Asav. <laughs> That's funny. Three hundred seventy-six. Hmm. Uh, in other words. Um, in other words, because Asab represents kind of like the curse, mm-hmm. and the you know he was the epitome of these of some mm-hmm. of these kind of bad things and bad you know bad behavior that causes these kinds of things. So there was a connection to Asab if you take the large lamet and remove it, and and then kind of look at what that says. The other the other uh, idea was. Okay, a lamed in Hebrew, um, 
has the idea, in, in, if you think about it as a hieroglyphic or a pictograph, it's like a, it's like a shepherd's goat or a shepherd's mm -hmm. crook, right. um, which is to say it's something that's used to prod, you know, prod a sheep or a goat or whatever in direction. a certain direction, right? Um, but it's it's but it's connected with the idea of the lama is connected with the idea of limu, which is to learn, um, because the the shepherd kind of guides and you know and teaches, as it were, his his sheep to follow him to you know kind of respond to his instruction that sort of thing. So um, so the lamed is 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 a, a associated with this idea of learning. So one idea was we failed to learn the, mm. pre the precepts Bam, and, you go. and therefore we were disobedient and now we're gone. Mm. The other idea is that, that while that may be in fact true because Hashem always has this master plan at work he, he, he casts us among the nations so that we will limud, we will teach Torah to, to the rest the of the world yeah. while we're while we're in exile. Mm. Okay, that's cool too. So it was a it was a prophecy of their punishment, but at the same time, it was also a prophecy of of what we would do while we're in exile. That we well, would be we would teach the Torah, or we should be teaching the Torah. To well, me. I like that one best because that's what Paul said that. Their rejection yeah. allowed us to be saved. You know, mm -hmm. so if if their rejection caused salvation, what would their acceptance be but life? Exactly. Right. So that's that's cool. So all of these understandings, by the way, are not mutually exclusive. Right. Mm -hmm. It did happen in thirty thirty kings, mm -hmm. and it is because we failed to learn or internalize right. the right. precepts ourselves. But in, yes, we are also in you know teaching Torah to the nations. So sure. all of these understandings are are all all valid. Yeah. Right. That's good. So then, when we go to the verse twenty eight that you were just talking about, if you look there, we also have some interesting nuance. Oh, yeah, like little little weird dots. We have eleven we have dots, dots on top of all the letters. We have eleven dots among the um, words "lanu" us. Yeah. Our children, and then there's a dot over the ayin on the word ad, adolam, which is which is translated in English as forever. So there's these eleven dots, lanu, ulbanenu, right? Because ayin is silent; it doesn't make sound. So again. What is all of this about? Um, so actually, Rashi, uh, Rashi says. By the way, there's I think 32 times in the in the Torah where we have dots that show up in di in different different um, portions. Um, Rashi says that whenever you see a dot, you 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 remove you remove the, the letter. Okay, so if you do that, so so basically paraphrasing the verse, the verse, uh, the verse basically says paraphrasing because the word sins is not really in the text, right? It basically says 
the concealed is for Hashem, or the hidden is for Hashem, and revealed is for us and our children forever. That's kind of what the what what the uh, a good translation of the verse would say. If you take the lanu or banenu and then the aleph out, it would be you would it would read this way. The concealed is for Hashem, our God, but the revealed is the revealed is for Dalit. Right, because the ayin will be gone. Because the ayin is gone. The ayin ad adolam. So if you take the ayin out, you're left with a Dalit. So Dalit is a picture of a door, hieroglyphically or hieroglyphically or pictographically. That word, yeah. Is a door. In other words, when you open a door, you've revealed something. Mm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, in other words, if we take out mm. if we take out those letters, the concealed is for Hashem, but the revealed door is for is is for eternity. Or the revealed door, you could you could understand this way: the revealed door leads to eternity. To hmm. carry out the words of the Torah. So, according to Rashi's view here, this is saying that the Torah and and internalizing the Torah and carrying out the words of the Torah, the revealed Torah that God has given us, um, is is a door that to opens life. to eternal life. Hmm. That'll preach. Oh yeah, <laughs> right. Um, especially if you know the living Torah. Especially who's, if you who's know been the revealed. Torah. Exactly. In these last days. Exactly. So, um, so that is um, Rashi's take on what these these eleven dots mean. Um, there was one other one that was a little bit more Kabbalistic, so I won't go into it, but um, <laughs> that was kind of cool. But that's cool. That's very cool. Like that very much. Um, and then I think you wanted to move us into chapter 30, sir, correct? Yeah, uh, I mean, it's just... Uh, when all these things come upon you. Yeah. And uh, you will return to God. So it's it's that great awakening, as it were, that we were taught in the church. Um, verse 3, Then God, your God, will return your captives from exile. He'll have mercy on you. He'll gather you again from the nations where God, your God, had dispersed you. And we pray that every morning, mm-hmm. right, that God will gather his elect from the four corners of the earth. Mm-hmm. You know, that used to be the, um, when we were praying for the rapture of the church or the gathering, um, snatching away as it were. But it's interesting that uh, what, what Rambam says about this. Um, the true test of events to see if they herald the redemption or not, is to see whether there has been an essential change in the causes which have been brought about, which brought about the exile in the first place, namely, a new tendency in the direction of stronger adherence to the Torah and mitzvot. It has been amply explained in the written and oral Torah that the exile will come, uh, that the gula, the redemption, will come through the Melech HaMashiach. It will come through King Messiah. And the Rambam declares... When a king of the house of David will arrive, dedicated to the study of the Torah and observance of the mitzvot, like his father David, according to the Torah Shebik, Shebikisav, the written Torah, 
and Shebael Pei, oral Torah, and he will compel all the Jewish people to walk in it and strengthen its fences, and he'll fight the wars of God. If that happens, he's assumed to be the Mashiach. That's not certain. It's not a certain sign of the redemption, for all this can still take place in the state of exile. However, if this King Messiah did so and has succeeded in the above matters, namely having won all the battles and, and impelled all the Jewish people to study the Torah and to mend its fences, we're still not sure and require a further sign, namely, we'll build the temple in its place, clearly in Jerusalem, indicating that there will be a large Jewish population in the city, yet we're still not certain of the end of the exile. So one further factor must be fulfilled, namely, he gathers the dispersed of Israel from the four corners, and then there is no doubt he is certainly the Mashiach. So I, I just I just think it's great that they see Mashiach in the pages of Scripture and what they describe, whether it fully identifies what the Master did in his first coming or what he will do in his second coming is irrelevant to me. But if there's anything that the Master was known for, he was pointing the people back to the Torah. Do what's right. Repent. Why? Well, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I mean, right. let's go. So we checked off uh, item one. That's right. For the That's boxes. exactly right. So there it is. Now, I, I like the way the, the you know he looks at that last checkbox, is that he will gather in the dispersed. And yet we know from the apostolic writings that when he returns, every eye will see him, and he will gather his people from the four corners of the earth. So he's actually going to slam dunk it at the beginning and gather everybody up. And I think Ezekiel's pretty clear that we help, Gentiles help Messiah build that temple. So, so just to add on to that, um, so one of the 13 principles of faith that, that Rambam laid down is... I believe with complete faith in the coming of the Messiah. And even and, if he and tarries. Even if he tarries, though he tarries, I will wait. Mm -hmm. Right? That principle is based on this portion in this in this um, parsha, which is is amazing because I mean it says God will do these things. Yeah. But, but if, they tell you right but, to Mashiach. But he identifies it with with Mashiach primarily because he then knits it together with the prophecies and the prophets yeah. where, where, where it becomes a little more clear that this is yeah. Messiah doing And, and if you look at, the, at the, the reading we had from the prophets today, God makes it clear that he personally will do all the stuff that we're talking about. Right. So this is where we get the principle of, of faith that we, have, that we wait in complete faith from Shia. Amen. Um, and then just to touch on the in-gathering, because, again, that's a really important um, component here. In Christianity, we have this doctrine of the rapture. Well, actually, I should, I should take that back. In a very small subset of Christianity, there's a doctrine of the rapture, right. which is typically understood as, you know, Jesus will come back and he'll, you know, and we're actually kind of pick up all the good Christians and leave all the wicked people and the Jews here to suffer through the Great Tribulation, and we'll watch from the balcony of heaven. And, and the rapture theory speaks of taking people to the marriage supper of the Lamb, which happens in heaven, not here. Right. Exactly. And that's 
they take Paul, First Thessalonians chapter four, First Corinthians fifteen, and a few other places, right. and they've devised a theology that actually is. I mean, it's a different theology, right? Mm-hmm. But what was Shaul talking about in those passages? He was talking about two things. He was talking about the resurrection and the ingathering. That's right. And the ingathering is based here mm-hmm. also. So we're not when Shaul was giving those, you know, was making those statements in his in his writings. He's not talking about some, you know, fly up to heaven and float around while everything else bad is happening here. He's talking about the ingathering, mm-hmm. right? And uh, which is a very Jewish understanding, um, and to construe it as something other than the ingathering of the exiles that Mashiach will perform is to create a new religion. Yes, sir. So. And, it, you know, the amazing thing is, if you study the rapture, uh, which, which comes from the Latin Vulgate, rapturo, to snatch up, which I believe is actually what he's going to do, he's going to snatch up his people. If you study the Old Testament first, if we study the Tanakh first and then go to Thessalonians, well, it fits perfectly. And as you said, you, you're able to figure out exactly where Paul is coming from. That... You know, the dead in Messiah will rise first, and then we who are alive and remain, who's the we? Orthodox Jews who believe in Messiah are caught up together with them, the dead guys that just got raised, and thus we shall be together with him forever. And it's supposed to be, the eight, verse 18 in chapter 4 of Thessalonians says, therefore comfort one another with these words. It should be a comfort to you that whether you are alive or you're dead, when Messiah finally comes, he will gather up the dead ones and the live ones. And it doesn't say go up. It just says he gathers them. Which is, right. Which is exactly the same text that's used. Absolutely. He's going to gather his people. Where would the king of Israel gather his people to? <laughs> I beg your pardon. Daniel, I participle on Shabbat. To where would <laughs> the king of Israel gather his people? I, maybe Jerusalem. But I, this city. Yeah. They, uh, I mean, come on. Which also, I mean, so Joshua got to do this for the first time in this, this Shabbat, right? But in the in the Shacharit, when we gather the four Zitzia right, and right. that is a That's outward symbolic um, picture. That we believe that. That God will gather his people from the four corners of the earth, wherever Which, they which are. actually Amen. comes from, uh, Yeshua quotes from that when he's talking about the yes. end days too, he talks about gathering from the four winds, yes. same sure. imagery. Yeah, same deal. But then the funny part is there's even like, um, that keeping that talit image going, late, uh, also in the in the Tanakh, it talks about like, rolling up the skies like a garment, right. which in tradition on Shabbat, because we're trying to do things differently, we roll it. you don't fold your talit, you roll it. So that, that imagery of like, it's almost like, well, first we gather during the prayers, and then when we're done with everything, you roll it up because we're all finished now. So you get this imagery going on of this almost like, almost like the, the, the end times is a talit, so to speak, yeah. and you're seeing these pictures coming up throughout the Well, well it, cool. I, you know, I, I think you know, if you're just going to continue along the metaphor, right, if we're in the apostolic scriptures, that was the woman... Who had the bleeding for 12 years, Wings, right? Yeah. In the kanaf, in the corners of his garment, would be healing. Right. She had read the prophets, and she believed it as if it were right now. 
healing in his wings because the healing in his wings can yeah. So I mean, t- that that's just amazing, yeah, right? Very you, know, cool. that you would see the imagery of a garment that actually wasn't even used or invented in that period of time because they actually had their their tzitzit on their regular all-day garment, mm. unlike us having to use a, an additional vehicle. Um, this is so exciting to hear this. <laughs> um, but what does it mean? What does the phrase meet him in the air mean? How does that go along by now? Well, he, he actually gathers up, because the, 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 the gathering of his people from the four corners of the winds or of the four corners of the earth it, you know, it just implies that they're going to come up and over rather than, I think, the, the new theology of gathering up and just keep going up, right. you know, some, like some mushroom cloud of nuclear disaster up to heaven somehow. But, yeah, just gathering them up because Which the dead it? rise, right? right? Mm-hmm. And then they're gathered mm-hmm. together mm-hmm. with him. So. Which also ties in with the idea of meeting him in the air, yeah. not meeting him in heaven, mm-hmm. which is the more logical thing right, if we're right. just going straight up. But meeting him in the air because he's coming down, so to speak, right. and well, you know, getting him on the way. He will descend from the right. heavens, right? Yeah. So, um, yeah, you get that that very interesting end times imagery. Um, but you know, for the for the Baptists or anybody else that's that's holding on to the to the rapture theory and that they will be evacuated before anything bad happens, um, is not only denied by just normal everyday events, <laughs> but but is also denied if you take a look at that scripture. Because it doesn't imply anything with regard to the timing in right. there. In Matthew 24 and 25, the Master's pretty clear. It's at the end. His people are going to be there, and they are going to be decimated. It's going to be amazingly bloody. And if he doesn't cut it short, Katabalo, right. right? Cutting short something that was intended to be longer. If he doesn't do that, there might no flesh be saved. Right, and his people would be completely gone. And he's going to cut that off. So if you tie it together, he cuts that off by showing up. Showing up, and you get the idea though that, like, I mean, even today with things like the Left Behind series, whatever else, mm-hmm. they almost have to get really creative to figure out who are the good guys on Earth suffering through the tribulation. Yeah, because it's like, well, we already took it. We took the good guys. So who's left? So all those poor saps who happened to have the light bulb go off then... Too late! Oh, if I only accepted Jesus about five minutes ago, it would have been okay. But now I'm here stuck for the next seven, three and a half years. Three and a half whatever. years, I'm stuck. Yeah, but, but that, that's the only group that's left, because we have to have somebody here who has to suffer, because they're the, you know, anyway. Or the Jews is the other one, you know. So it's like, basically you have to, like, create the bad, the, you know, the poor saps that get left behind. Or, or to discuss the marriage supper of the Lamb in a non-physical way, somehow amongst the clouds, you know. Yeah. It just, having think... having supper with the king in the king's city, the promise sitting on the throne of David, that, that's, that's, that has really a whole good, lot more... I'm counting on a really good dinner <laughs> of Leviathan <laughs> in the sukkah in Jerusalem. Amen. That's... What I think picturing for the marriage supper of the Lamb, which is also another tradition, by the way. That's right. But, I mean, you kind of touch on really a broader concept that's a dichotomy, I think, a lot between um, between a Hebraic and Jewish understanding versus, you know, a, a, a Gentile Christian yeah. understanding. And that is um, Christianity kind of says that 
the spirit and the soul are really what's good and the physical, the body or whatever is bad. Mm -hmm. uh, which is not only, uh, I don't think, completely accurate with the scripture, but um, but it it, uh, it it it's contrary to a Jewish understanding. Absolutely. And the body was created by Hashem in His image. Amen. Um, and the so, Catholic Church too also got that messed up, and that's why they were, right. you know, whipping themselves right. because the the body was evil. So, which is why we don't cremate the body. Mm -hmm. Because what's going to be resurrected? The body. For what purpose? To give life to the soul. Amen. So the fact that we spiritualize the marriage supper of the Lamb in Christianity and would say it's not a physical thing, it's happening, you know, in you know, on the golden shore, sweet by and by. Yeah. Is just is a symptom of that whole kind of um, kind of construct that says anything physical is is bad. No, yeah. it's not because it was created by Hashem. It's been corrupted because of mm -hmm. because of sin. Yeah. But that's the whole point. The whole point is we got to fix we're it. Gonna, Hashem is going to fix that, mm -hmm. and hopefully, we're going to help him you know, to the extent we can be used by him to do that because. The physical um, is just as important as the as the spiritual because if all you are is a soul, what are you doing? Exactly. Mm -hmm. You can't you can't perform mitzvah if you're just a spirit floating around, just a soul right. you know, sitting on a cloud. Well, you have to have a body to give life to the soul. Yeah, but you, but you, I agree with one hundred percent. But you just you just dipped into our worldview. To explain their worldview, and that won't work, because if you say, "Well, I mean, what are you doing? If you don't have a body, you can't perform the mitzvahs." Well, they don't care about that to begin with, well, right? right? Yeah. So they're they're like, I, "I need to leave this this corrupt place. This mortal needs to put on immortality, and I need to be changed into incorruptible flesh. That's the only thing that's going to help me." Well, yeah, I get that part, but to your point. We, we have the opportunity today to serve him and to keep those mitzvahs in our bodies. And, and one of the other fundamental underpinnings of their theology, to your point, is they don't believe that we're righteous. Right. All they believe is that you've got the stamp that says you're righteous now only because of what he did. What you do has nothing to do with it, and you can't keep the commandments. Right. You're hopelessly lost and you know we fundamentally disagree with a whole lot of this stuff and you can pin any one of their theologies and just go boop okay that one fell through let's see can we try boop, 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 boop. you know well, and it's, it's one after another one of the um, of course one of the biggest arguments ironically enough that I think Paul was alluding to against the idea that the body is irrelevant is the resurrection yes Chapter because 15. by bringing back the, the body you're in What's reinforcing the, the idea right. that's right, right. So you, and without the resurrection, we should be pitied because we're, we're just jokers. Right, this is doing? fate. And the, it's cool because the idea of taking the physical and making it better, mm. as opposed to dismissing with it because it's, it's useless, is actually the whole con is very similar to the concept behind circumcision, which is in this passage. 
because I'm pulling it back to the parasha, we've got this idea of the body being incomplete, so to speak. Um, it's it's a it's a it's a process to to get it to where it needs to be, but it's not inherently bad. So the circumcision is a matter of like perfecting the physical body. Notice that even though he uses the imagery here of circumcising the heart, that it was always a physical act, first and foremost, and we actually understand the spiritual only because we have done the physical. So the physical becomes almost like the um, starting point for what the spiritual is about. And actually, I believe that's sort of what's getting alluded to in chapter 30. If you look in chapter 30, um, uh, verse 1, I'm sorry, excuse me, uh, verse 2 it says that if you will, if you take your heart, right, and you will return to Adonai your God and listen to his voice according to everything that I command you today, you and your children, with all your heart and all your soul. Well, the phrase, all your heart and all your soul, shows up uh, three times in the first ten verses of this chapter. Um, it shows up there. It's what you do. And, you, and what is it? You listen to his voice according to everything I command you. The next that's time, a physical thing. That's a physical thing, Right. Uh, that's exactly my point. You get to the next time, it's, I mean, the, the last time it's written here, in verse 10, when you listen to the voice of Adonai your God to observe his commandments and his decrees that are written in this book of the Torah, when you shall return to Adonai your God with all your heart and all your soul. So we got all your heart and all your soul twice now, and in both cases, this is what you do. When you sin and you are exiled, then when you go, I knew it, and you realize that you've made a mistake, you turn around and you obey, you do with your heart and all your soul. And then, what does God say? It says in verse, um, the right verse here, uh, he talks about the idea that he's going to take, he's going to circumcise that heart. Six. Uh, thank you. Adonai your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring to love Adonai your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So in other words, what we've got here is a two-part process. Number one, you are going to obey God with all of your heart and all your soul. And then, when you do that, that physical act of obedience, God is going to come up behind that, and he is going to enable you to make you love God with all your heart and all your soul. This is not to say that we're not commanded to love God, or, as we will see in a second, we're unable of loving God, because, of course, we can do all the mitzvot. But the idea being that, like, it, it's this concept, my dad loves this idea, the idea that you, you do first, and then God changes your heart. You act right, and then the emotions, the right inspiration will follow. We are actually commanded to serve God joyously. That was in a parashah or two ago, saying if you don't do that, that all these curses are coming upon you. So it's not that the heart is irrelevant, but the point being that like, basically it's almost like God saying, look, I'll give you guys an easy way in. Just start by doing it, and I'll help you finish. And, and so I think that that's almost the idea in this passage, that when that repentance comes, because if you've ever been in a place like that, where you've done something, um, or a number of things maybe, and you really look at your life and feel like it's a mess and you want to make it better, um, changing that emotion, changing what you want, what you love, is, is, is a latter step. That's really difficult. Changing what you do is less so. It, just one well, analogy, and I'll get to both of you. Um, I, had a, I had a roommate one time who dealt with depression. And one of the things that helped get him out of it, and one of the things that he was encouraged to do by someone to get him out of it, was to go running. And he did not feel like running. I mean, depression makes you want to lie in bed all day. So he didn't, he didn't want to get up. to do it, If they need money, tell them to come back. <laughs> if they... Um, so the idea is that de- depression uh, is one of those things that you used to feeling. 
So how do you change the feeling? You do. You do something that requires some sort of action on your part to, to push yourself. And then the feelings change. Same thing here. You act obediently, and then that love towards God will come in behind it. Something he does. So I got you and then you. All right, so I won't steal anything from you. Just to, to um, bring home what you're saying, Paul said that we should work out our salvation mm-hmm. in fear and trembling. And yet at the same time, he says that God, who began a good work in you, will he it. will complete it and bring it to fruition. So in Who's in the, the in verse six, Adonai your God will circumcise yeah, your heart. Really he, the Hebrew is, it gun? is uh, the Hebrew is. Uh, find it again. Umal Adonai Elohecha et levavcha veet leval zarecha. Okay, so um, Hashem will circumcise your heart and the heart of actually the heart of your seed. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you take the words, um, if you take the words uh, et levavcha, your heart, ve'et, and lavav, the heart, take those four words, the first letter of each of those, uh, aleph lamed, aleph lamed spells, uh, or uh, vav lamed spells, Mm -hmm. Okay, so this portion is always read on Shabbat before Rosh Hashanah because we stand before Hashem, right? Uh, Or we're about to stand before Hashem. And the whole idea here is, look, guys, you gotta, you got to repent because if you don't, you know, these bad things will happen. Mm Repentance, circumcision of the heart is repentance. That's it's a it's a it's a um, you know it's an expression to mean to you know to a change of the heart, right? A turning of the heart, um, and it's alluded here to the, in, in the text with the with the the acronym Elul that this is the time of the year. Especially set aside the month of the rule, where we ought to be going through this process of circumcising our heart. Right? I mean, we should be doing that all the time, but there's something about the month of the rule and preparing and circumcising our heart um, as we get ready to stand before Hashem on Rosh Hashanah. And and I think there's an extra measure of grace that Hashem gives people who make that effort at this time of year. So, mm-hmm. uh, just something. To think about. Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, Menachem is is just like confused with this whole thing. He's he's like, I don't get it. What does it mean to circumcise your heart? Why doesn't it say circumcise the foreskin of your heart? Because the foreskin is something that is not needed or wanted and must be removed, mm. right? So why didn't it say that? Um, so he looks at uh, chapter 30 and verse uh, verse 2, I guess, return to God your God with all your heart, with all your soul. Well, if you did that, well, what's there to circumcise? If all my heart is turned towards God, then well, what is there to circumcise? And there is no 
foreskin we're talking about, it's actually circumcising the heart. It's interesting that in the Torah it tells us to circumcise our own hearts. And, and it says that he's going to circumcise our hearts. It's the same thing that Paul was saying where you got to work it out in fear and trembling. But God started it and he'll finish it. You know. So it's a, it's a team thing. Um, so anyway, Rashi's whole deal, if, if you're unfamiliar with it, Rashi's thing was if something's not absolutely understandable from the plain reading of the text, I'll write down and tell you all about it. That's what Rashi did. That was what his commentary was all about. Line by line, from Genesis to, to the end of Deuteronomy, if it wasn't obvious from the plain meaning of the text, he would explain it. He doesn't touch this. So Menachem is like, well, why doesn't Rashi clarify this? We don't have a foreskin of the heart we're talking about. We already turned our heart towards God. What, what's the deal? So he says, the question why Rashi is silent here is strengthened by the fact that Ankalos, whose translation of the Torah into Aramaic also aims to explain scripture at the literal level. And he does deal with the matter. Ankalos explains that the circumcision referred to here, referred to here is to remove the foolishness of your heart. So he explains that there's good answers, there's bad answers, and there's answers that are somewhat... Uh, wishy-washy, but the bottom line is that no matter where you're at with God, as you were saying, if you simply start to turn to God and desire to do His will and to keep His mitzvot and to accept that free gift of salvation, that God is then going to circumcise anything that's left that needed to be taken care of. Mm -hmm. And I just, I'm very encouraged by that. Uh, the especially that you would walk in it. That's exactly right. Especially when we get to verse eleven and he starts talking about. It's not. It's not too high. It's right. It's not too far away. This is very near to you. The midrash plays off of that passage when I and I reason why I pulled out your midrash. Thank you for letting me borrow it regularly. Anytime. Um, uh, Just wash, you wash your hands, hands before you. I did actually Good. wash my Good. hands. Good. There it is. Um, it says that. Uh, the, the, the Torah said, the, the, the Midrash comes back, God continues to address Israel. And if you should argue that perhaps it is to your detriment that I have given you the Torah, that sounds like some people we know, That's weird. Um, that this is not so. I have given you the Torah only for your benefit. For the ministering angels desired the Torah for themselves, but it was hidden from them. We this goes, in the apostolic we do, too. We're going to dive into that for a second. But he says, they follow up the Midrash, says, well, how do we know that? <laughs> And it says, for it is stated, it was hidden from the eyes of all living things. And the living things is a reference to chayot, which is right. one type of angel. And it was concealed from the flying creatures of the heavens. And the flying creatures is a reference to angels in general. Um, and then they continue to explain how that works. And so basically, uh, it's, it says that he follows up the, uh, that it's not from you. So he says, God concludes and says to Israel, my children, from the ministering angels it is hidden. But from you it is not hidden. Where do we, from where do we know this? From that which we have read regarding the matter here in our verse. For this commandment that I command you today, it is not hidden from you. What's interesting is I remember at the beginning I mentioned that there's, a, there's an interwoving here of the Torah and of the Gospel of Messiah. And we get that here. Because what, the, the, what they're basically saying is that the Torah has been hidden from the angels, not in heaven, referencing essentially that it, they don't understand it, but it's for us. Well, Peter plays off of, as your quote, as you were alluding to, he plays off of the same passage in um, 1 Peter chapter 1, 
uh, verses 12, verse 12, he says, It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, in these things which now have been announced to you, to those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. This idea being that like the, the gospel of Messiah is somehow a mystery to angels. Um, you get that. Uh, I used to th- sort of, one, one interpretation I used to somehow think of was like, I, I thought maybe that Peter was playing off of the Ark of the Covenant. You know, the angels are staring at the mercy seat, which again has this idea of forgiveness and atonement. And almost like the angels are sort of staring in shock, like how does that work? You know, angels are perfect. They don't need forgiveness, you know, something along those lines. But actually, I think that Peter's pulling from the Midrash. Because what's really, because Paul... Or the Midrash is pulling from Peter. Or the Midrash is pulling from Peter, either way. <laughs> but Paul does the same thing. Paul also borrows from this passage specifically yeah. and ties it back into the, um, into the gospel. Because in Romans chapter 10, he specifically argues that it deals with... Um, this passage is talking about Messiah. I think it's chapter 10. Uh, I can't find it. But you can... Um, Basically, he says, it's not in heaven. Oh, here it is. Here it. Um, for Moses writes, the man who practices the righteousness, which is based on the Torah, shall live by that righteousness. But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Notice that Moses is who he immediately starts to quote. So clearly we're not dismissing the Torah. We're just like digging a little deeper into it. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Messiah down. Or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Messiah up from the dead. The sea and the abyss are parallels um, in Jewish tradition. But that, what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth, Yeshua is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the, a heart a person believes resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses resulting in salvation. Which is interesting because, again, we're getting this is interweaving. Instead of the Torah being this thing here, and Messiah being this thing here, and you do this, and you fail here, and now you need this. It's almost more like, it's like, it's sort of like this progressive storyline, you know, start to finish. And it's like, you've got this, it's all interwoven. And so when, when God says, you can do the Torah, it's not too far away, it's in your mouth, it's in your heart that you may be able to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, it is also like mixed in with the gospel. The gospel requires obedience, even if it is by faith. And at the same time, it's like the Torah required faith, even if it is by obedience. And it's like this whole, this whole imagery, and, and throughout the Torah, we get, throughout the law that God's giving, we're getting these pictures of God being the one who forgives, of God being the one who, who calls us to himself. Moses makes it clear, it's not because of how great you are that God chose you, it's rather because of the covenant that he made with your fathers, and which Paul also alludes to in Romans. So this idea, the mouth and heart, then become organs, literally, of, of the, the, the pathway to like internalizing, to actualizing the Torah and the gospel Pathways to together, which are both the, the, on the, the pathway, there's not two, the pathway to righteousness. So it's, you, get that, you get that interweaving. And it's cool because another tradition I read, and I don't know if it's in this Midrash or not, but the one that um, Juliana has, the little commentary at the bottom, it just noted that like, the mouth and the heart is almost like a start to beginning. It's like the mouth is up here, the heart's down here. So it's like this is where you begin and this is where you end. Um, and so it's like you get this, again, there's almost like this imagery really, from, from like the starting, which we were talking about earlier in the passage, the starting with those physical actions and then that internalization, which only God can do, which he does with the work of Messiah. Which is also flipped in the scripture. 
to say that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth, the mouth speaks. speaks. Right, right. But then you've got this. So basically the way that it's, it's working for us here is we are believing in Hashem and then live that faith out in obedience and God changes the heart, Amen. which is the gospel. That's right. Uh, so anyway, I thought that was great that both Moses and Peter are pulling from the same passage to basically talk about the same thing. And but Paul, confession, as I meant, Peter, confession and, Paul. and faith. Right. I mean, that's not a Christian thing. No. It's a Jewish thing. Right. Oh. Yeah. Right. That's right. Exactly. Any final comments? I know we've already got a drosh on the next passage earlier today. This, this is this is just an amazingly, wonderfully cool portion. No question about it. I know, and in spite of the fact that it's like all of 40 verses, I think yeah. the, the Haftar was almost as long. Yeah, exactly right. And, and your drosh uh, during the service was great. And, you know, to your point, how appropriate, uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with the, with the, uh, with the calendar and, and its machinations, the calendar's fixed. By that I mean it's, it's rigged. They rigged the calendar deliberately to make sure that certain things never happen and some things always happen. And he mentioned one this morning. This is always the portion read on the Sabbath before Rosh Hashanah, by definition. You know, and there's other things that can't happen. There's other things that must happen. But uh, it just makes so much sense that you'd be reading this right before you stand before the judge of all the earth. Wow. So choose good. Right. Choose life. Yeah, choose life. L'chaim. L'chaim. All right. Um, do you want to close that? I'd love to. Because we're, you know, we used to be in the church, and we have to end everything. That's right. <laughs> end with prayer, yeah. You going to pray with me? All right, let's pray. Good Father, what a privilege it is to be with your people, to study your word, which in and of itself is a gift, both the written and the living Torah. We thank you for the gift of Messiah Yeshua, the gift of community, the gift of family. And Father, we thank you for the gift of salvation, only made at a very high price, the blood of our Master. Father, as, uh, as we come into uh, Norim Yamim, the high holy days, uh, Noramim, I think it is, I pray, Father, that you would uh, open our hearts, circumcise them, that we might understand and be obedient to you in all ways. And that this year, 5776, might be the year that we see Messiah come and redeem his people. Gather them for the four corners of the earth, from the four winds. And bring us all to Jerusalem, Father. That we might worship him openly, worship you. And that we might see that temple rebuilt. And that the sacrifices might be pleasing and a pleasant aroma to you. I pray these things and thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen. Good Shabbos. Shana Tava.